I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine, the teaching that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ by their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. These words were a warning from Paul to the church at Rome in his letter to them. Through Paul, God gave them a clear warning. A warning to his people to be on the lookout for those who deceive, those who lead astray, who look like Christians, but are actually not serving Jesus. As you survey the Bible, you will see that this is not a problem confined to the church in Rome. Or, as we were reading before, to the church in Corinth. It is a perpetual problem, Old Testament and New, that there would be people who look like they belong to God, but actually they are leading people astray. God's people have always been in danger of false teaching. And in fact, we could even make the case that the fall of humanity was on the basis of false teaching. Kids, what did Eve say? What did the snake in the garden say to Eve? Yes. Yes. It started with, did God actually say? So very close. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And then when Eve responded, Satan cast doubt on her response. Um, He gave an alternate viewpoint. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he cast doubt. With this deception, this false teaching, our whole race of humankind has been plunged into the darkness of sin that gives birth to death. False teaching is a grave danger for each one of us who seeks the Lord. It's a grave danger. And so the prophets of old regularly warned God's people. We're also warned in the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, letters to Timothy, Titus, one of John's letters, Hebrews, Romans. Everywhere we are warned against the danger of false teachers and false teaching. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the word we, Christianity, we often talk about doctrine. Um, it's, a, it's a fancy word that just means teaching. So we use those words interchangeably. If I'm talking about doctrine, it's not something special or different to what we do here every Sunday. It's just the teaching. So false doctrine, false teaching is a danger. And so it's a resounding refrain from the scriptures, a clear word from God for you to be aware. He gives you this warning for your health, for your safety, so that your faith will stay true to the end. And so here today, I give you this warning. Watch out for false teachers. Some of you are young in the faith and do not realize there are reefs out there that will make a shipwreck of your faith. You're naive. But the thing about being naive is that you don't realize that you're naive yet. You're not yet wise to the duplicity and danger that lurks even among those who say they follow God. And this goes both for you who, have, who are young in the faith as in just recently become Christians, but this also goes for you children. I hope that you are safe from the danger of false teaching under the care of your parents. 
and under the guidance of church family, but one day you will encounter someone teaching a false gospel, and you need to be aware that those people are out there. And this warning is not just for young upstarts with their wild passion and naivete. Even when we have laboured long for the Lord among his people and we've grown older, we can still become weary and unguarded in our faith. Like foolish agag, we think surely the bitterness of death is past, even while the sword is still unsheathed. So long as you are in the flesh, you are on the battlefield. As long as you are in the flesh, you are running the race. Will you run in vain to be turned aside on a false fake track at the end before you reach the finish line? Take up your shield of faith so that you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Stand firm on the rock so that you may be immovable and steadfast in the storm. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, yet the enemies of God would destroy it if they could. They cannot, but they, would, they try. But in trying to dissuade people from finding this one true faith, they proliferate counterfeits and alternatives so as to hide this true faith once delivered to the saints. But I don't say this to cause you to go into fear and despair. Jesus Christ will overcome these dangers. He will protect you. He will lead you to the truth. But how will he do it? One of the ways that he does it is by warning you to be careful. He will not bring you home through complacency. The tools he uses are things like good teaching and warnings. And that's what we're doing here right now. Hearing the warning so that we might be better prepared for the danger that we face. Now, I'm not talking about this because I heard Paco's sermon from two weeks ago. I'm not talking about this because of Bruce's uh, preaching last week. I, I don't even know what he said. I wasn't there and we didn't get a recording. This is just a general principle. It's something that we need to be thinking about as we face the world as God's people. As I said, it's all across the pages of Scripture. It must be something that we need to hear. So where are we going on this topic? Well, first I'm going to walk through some of the key parts of that 2 Corinthians passage, and then I'm going to trace out some of the common false teaching things that you might come across in the world today. We can't get into heaps of detail, but of course if you want to, there's a particular thing where you're thinking, hang on, how's, how does that fit? Why is that false teaching? Um, those kinds of things. Then we can, we can work that out in detail later on. All right. The first thing is divine jealousy. Divine jealousy. Jealousy is one of those things that is often a sin, but in the right context, it can be good. Same with something like anger. It's usually a sin because it means that you're coveting something that is not yours to have. But there's a proper and good kind of jealousy, like the kind of jealousy that God has for the affections of his people. And I think that's similar to the type of jealousy that Peter, uh, sorry, Paul has here in 2 Corinthians. I think that um, he, he's helped this young church get saved. He's helped them to meet Jesus. He's, he's committed to seeing them through the challenges that they face, to stay faithful to God in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1 there, he says, I, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
I promise to you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So, so Paul uses the language of marriage to highlight the sanctity and exclusivity of the relationship between Christ and, 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 and the church. He helped bring the Corinthians into this good relationship. He, he's been the matchmaker, so to speak. And, and as a Christian himself, he has a vested interest in their success of belonging to God and sticking with him. He's jealous for them to stick with their true husband, the one that they committed to forever. So why is there jealousy? Jealousy. Good jealousy can only come about when there's something out of kilter, when there's something out of place, where there is a reason to be jealous. It's when there's faithlessness or, or, or cheating that jealousy comes to, into play. And the Corinthians seem to be showing signs of departing from their true husband. And this, in general, is why Paul is writing the letter. He needs to tell them, he needs to encourage them, he needs to help them stick to the truth. There seems to be guys going around and claiming to be super apostles, apostles that are better than the apostles that Jesus pointed, appointed. I don't know how you, how you do that. And there were all kinds of things that they were kind of promoting. And, and one of the things that they promoted was that they would take a lot of money from the church. But one of the other things that they promoted was the idea that suffering doesn't go along with being a follower of Jesus. And so because Paul was suffering, he was obviously not a real follower of Jesus. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the details of the rest of the letter, but safe to say that they were promoting ideas that were not fitting to go with the gospel of Jesus. They were spruiking teaching that turned people aside from the fullness of the true gospel. And so Paul needed to respond. And that's what he was doing here in this chapter with his divine jealousy. And I think we too can have a divine jealousy for faithfulness to Jesus. We ought to be jealous for one another's hearts to be faithful to the Lord, to be faithful to the bride, sorry, to be the faithful bride, even while we wait for the appearing of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so people are led astray. That's the next heading there, led astray. So why are the people showing signs of not being faithful? Is it because there's a problem with Jesus? No, there's no problem with Jesus. Is there, is there a different God that's come along? No. There is deception and mistruth around Jesus. They're being tricked into believing a counterfeit. It's, they've got a doppelganger. It kind of looks like Jesus, but it's different. In, from verse 3, it says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches Jesus, a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you receive, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. It, as a, we see here that Paul sees the signs that we saw in the Garden of Eden with Eve and, and, the, and the snake. The deceptive words led her astray. She was deceived by the serpent's cunning. And that seems to be his fear for the Corinthians, that they might be deceived by the cunning of those who bring a deceptive word. It doesn't really... It's different. It's different to the gospel. It's as though someone is replacing their husband with a lookalike, and the wife goes, close enough. Well, no. No. <laughs> There is only, she married one husband and she married him. 
It doesn't, you can't just swap in and out placeholder. There is one true Christ. We can't just swap in and out Christs that suit us or gospels that suit us. Just as, but interestingly here, just a reminder that just as Adam and Eve were responsible despite the deception and cunning of the serpent, the same goes for us. As we hear the words taught to us and proclaimed to us, as we hear the gospel taught, if we are deceived, there is a shared responsibility, right? It's not as though the person who deceived you is let off the hook. They are certainly guilty of great sin, deceiving. But we need to be on guard. We don't want to share in that responsibility of being deceived. And the next heading is undermine the underminers. Undermine the underminers. After pressing the case for his own ministry, Paul returns to the theme of false teachers. He basically says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with this. I will press on in the truth, knowing that it will win the day. In verse 12, I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So Paul saying, not going anywhere, I am going to stick with it. And in doing so, he is trying to cut the ground to undermine those who are saying this false message. They were boasting, they were spruiking their message, they were setting themselves up and puffing themselves up, but it was all falsehood. And Paul wants the truth to undermine it. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those. Paul expects that the truth will win in the end. He's going to keep preaching the gospel that he has. They want to be elevated, but Paul expects that they and their falsehood will be cut down. A great encouragement to us who face a sea of false gospels, we too should continue on unabashed, knowing that the truth will win in the end. Don't worry, the truth will prevail. The truth will set people free, so keep on in the truth. But interestingly, Paul is very frank about who and what these false teachers are. This clarity is great. He doesn't mince his words. They are false apostles. They are false apostles. They are deceitful workers. They are masquerading as apostles of Christ. He saves a lot of strong language for these false teachers. You might remember from Galatians, he told them to do some um, awful things to themselves, those who were leading the people astray. And so Paul doesn't pull his punches. He is kind and gentle and convincing and, um, and, and calling to those people who, uh, who need the kind word. But for those who are opposing God's people, those who are being a danger to the sheep, he saves up his hard words for them. And I think that we, in general, as a culture, are falling into the trap of mincing our words, of trying to, um, trying to be gentle and kind, even to those people who need to hear the hard words. We don't need to pull our punches where God has given us clear reason 
to go forward. Nearly mouth cowardice has been one of my sins, and so I ask you to forgive me, but I hope that it will not be a collective sin for us all. There is too much at stake for endless caveats. Every day people march off to their death and we sit here wondering if we're being too offensive. We think it unloving to to yell at people or to tell people that they're doing the wrong thing. And in some circumstances, we would be unloving, especially if we're doing it out of selfish ambition or, or um, or with meanness and anger in our heart. But we can do, we can be bold. We can proclaim the truth in love. It would be hugely unloving to sit back and sit quiet while people rush headlong to their doom. So yes, let's, let's strategize the best way to communicate truth to people. Let's take care that we don't deliberately alienate people. But let's do something and let's proclaim this truth and not let it be clouded. This is life and death. God, God's people have the gospel of life in their mouths, so go out and proclaim it. Call a spade a spade. Call sin, sin. Call righteousness, righteousness. Call Christ Lord over all. Call false teachers, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Our next heading is disguised as angels. Lies often come masquerading as something else. They're disguised as angels. Remember when cigarettes were promoted for their health benefits? Do you remember when the safe medicine thalidomide was, was given to pregnant mothers? We can be deceived. When all are saying that this is safe, this is okay, this is good, but there's something, that, there's something sweet in a lie that makes it attractive. The possibility that it could be true. The tantalizing hope that this lie is really representative of the way things are. But it gets also mixed in with truth. Often lies are mixed with the truth. So you can go, okay, well, I know that that bit's a truth. Maybe I can believe this bit as well. And it doesn't seem so dangerous. It's like a, a, a poisoned glass, right? A poisoned cup of, of a drink. It tastes like what you would expect it to taste like, but there could be poison mixed in. Um, I was thinking uh, another example is like, it, it can be like makeup. I'm sure you've seen some of the makeup tutorials on, on the web. If you put on enough makeup, you can look like just about anything you want, right? If you put on and if you cake on enough to cover it up. But it's a lie, right? It's, de- it's deception. That's not what you really look like. It's covering up what is truly underneath. And that's what lies are like. They have the, 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 the pretty outside, the good look, but you cannot see what hides beneath until you wipe it away. So there is truth that masquerades, sorry, there's lies that masquerade as truth. And they come from false teachers who who masquerade as followers of Christ. The masquerade is not just from the false teachers either. They are following in the footsteps of their father, the devil, as it talks about in verse 14. No wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. 
and their end will be what their actions deserve. Do you remember that uh, Satan was an angel? <clears throat> he was one of God's creations. Yet he fell. <clears throat> and his, uh, his, the, we want, poetically we might say the likeness of God in him has been dimmed because he has turned away from God. Yet there is still something about him that is what God created him to be, to be an angel of light. And so he can go around masquerading as that. He can come and, and present himself as if he were an angel of light. Somewhere else in the scriptures it says, even if an angel comes and brings you a different gospel, don't believe it. It's not just enough to have a divine experience and say, I heard this thing, or, or, this, or this particular figure told me something. It could be an, an angel in rebellion against God, bringing you a false gospel. But Satan's followers, they go around and they do the same. They look a bit like those who belong to Jesus. But there is a great judgment for them. They might put on the airs, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They will get what their actions deserve. God is just. He will bring good judgment against them. And that's a comfort to the flock, right? That God will deal with the wolves. That's a comfort to us. But it's a terror to the teacher, to the one who stands up to proclaim the truth, that they should be careful to be proclaiming what is really uh, in the Scriptures, what God has really and truly said. But did you also notice here that False teaching arises within the church. It is out there. We, we might think of what happened here last weekend with the, the Psychic Expo. We, we can go, that's false teaching. That's leading people astray. But in some sense, it's easier to deal with it when there's a separation, when it's over there. But often the false teaching that causes the most damage is the false teaching that rises up inside the church like tares among the wheat, like wolves who look like sheep and are in the midst of the flock. Weeds do the most damage in the areas where you're trying to grow something else, in, the, in your garden. That's where, you, where the weeds are that you want to get rid of. You don't really care so much if they're growing over there out of the way, but when they're in the garden and growing up, they cause problems. Though, they are, though false teaching is prolific outside the church, it causes the most damage when it's among us. Okay, so there we've done a bit of an overview of what we looked at in that, in that passage. So now let me turn and let's talk about the application of thinking through us, the church today, and false teaching. This is the present problem, if you're following along with your headings. The present problem. In Paul's day, usually, in order to get false teaching, you had to have a false teacher travel around and visit your church. And so usually these would be kind of charismatic guys, often trained in rhetoric. Um, often they looked a certain way. They were the kind of the epitome of the Greek ideal, you know, ripped. Um, and a great um, um, speaker, you know, have very good powers of oratory. And so these charismatic, good-looking blokes would, would travel around, and some of them had become, well, 
they thought they had become Christians, part of the church. And they would come around and they would teach. And so what you had to be careful of was when you had a false, uh, when you had a visiting preacher, so to speak, come to your church, you had to be on the lookout for what he was saying. But then over time, of course, the, 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 the gospel, the scriptures were all written down and, and codified and we, and we had the Bible. And so it became over, his, over time, you had to be more and more careful, not just about um, who might be visiting your church, who might be appointed as leadership, and then also what books you were reading, especially as um, in, when the printing press was invented, not only did it proliferate good books, it also proliferated bad teaching. There was a danger. And so now you had to be on the lookout what you read, you have to be on the lookout um, what is being taught. And, but in more or less, if you had your wits about you, if you got some good uh, teaching, then you could be on the lookout for the thing, those things and you could kind of steer clear of them. Now we live in an age where there has been uh, this technological invention, like the printing press before it, called the, called the internet, the World Wide Web. And so now we can have false teaching beamed across the world in a moment. And not only that, we carry around little portals in our pockets that give us access to all of this false teaching. Yes, it gives us access to great and wonderful stuff, but also it gives us access to a great ocean of terrible, terrible teaching. And so we face a danger that generations before us have not faced with having it so ubiquitous and around us. And this is in, in various avenues. Not just thinking about false teaching, but many sins and, and, and wickedness um, can, uh, we're faced with it in a way that we were not before. But in this case, we're talking about, talking about false teaching. And so, it's with us. We have to deal with it. Inevitably, when we, when we open up, even if we, you know, let's say we get on YouTube and we subscribe to a whole bunch of, of great, solid um, biblical content, we're going to get recommended a whole bunch of stuff that is not great, solid biblical content. And so we have to have our wits about us and be ready to face it wherever it comes. Some of the things that we see will be, um, there'll be dogmatic certainty about disputable matters. So you might get the person that sounds like they really know what they're talking about. And that's kind of attractive because, oh man, they, they've got it. And maybe I could have that kind of certainty if only I believed the things that they believed. Or conversely, sometimes our false teaching is quite nebulous. Kind of got all these floating ideas, but they never really fit together or land on any solid ground. And as I said before, Satan is trying every which way to lead God's people astray. So there will be a million false flavors and only one true truth. He'll be perpetually iterating counterfeits. So we need to be familiar with the real thing. Adam is, is, um, likes to talk about uh, the way that we need to be familiar with what the scriptures say so that we are on guard against the counterfeits when they arise. Like those who look at um, to find counterfeit money, they need to be familiar with what the real thing looks like so that they can spot the counterfeits. Sure, it's, it's, it's okay to, to go and study, you know, what are the, what are the, the usual ways in, in which you can spot a counterfeit. We can go and we can have a look at world religions and heresies and, 
and understand where they went astray. But what our focus should be is on the truth. Hold fast to the truth, once delivered to the saints. So let's say we find out that we find a false teacher. What do we do? Well, in Titus chapter 3, Paul gives some great advice. He says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing more to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So we need to be kind and loving to those who are teaching the, the wrong thing. We need to warn them. We need to show them their fault. We want to win them over as a brother in Christ. But if they stand stubbornly against what God has said, then we, we leave them alone. We leave them for God to deal with them in due time. Okay. So what... And, 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 that, and I would suggest that would mean, like, it's easy enough to do... Um, in, in person to avoid somebody if they're teaching the wrong thing but we need to be able to do that and, and think that way online I think as well to, if we see something and we see that it's wrong then ignore it do away with it, don't go back to it so what are some of the strains of false teaching that we see this is the, 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 the heading on the page, the strains of false teaching now I'm likely to offend you by this list of things that I'm going to briefly work through, but I'm doing it because it is good for us, and we can talk about the details later. Most of us have been deceived or at least tantalised by, by many of these things that we're about to talk about. And we need to search the scriptures and see what they have to say on these things. The worst false teaching is things that are around the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, right? But usually, a lot of these things have been dealt with in the past, over the, over the history. You think about Nicaea, Chalcedon, those, those great times when the church got together and said, let's recognise what the Bible says about these things, and we'll set it in writing, and it's all done. But you will still find Trinitarian false teaching coming up. And you might think of the, the Unitarians, or Jehovah's Witness theology, Mormon theology, there's a, there's a whole wing of stuff. Usually that's pretty easy for us to be aware of and to steer clear of, but it's still, you can get confused on the nature of God. If somebody comes around and tries to tell you that Jesus is not really God, or um, that there is only, that there's not three persons in God, but God became Jesus. He was not the Father while he was Jesus. There's not separation there, um, but he changed in different modes. We call that modalism. I'm going to go kind of lightning fast through these things. If you want to come back and talk about them later, that's, that's fine. We also reject false teaching on justification. That is around the nature of salvation. If somebody uh, wants to say, oh, you need salvation, but you also need this other thing. Um, or somebody wants to promote ideas about universal salvation. We just read a, a verse before that said, uh, talked about um, the, the, the judgment that is coming for false teachers. But some people want to say that all people will, all in the end, um, be saved and nobody will forever rest under the judgment of God. But that's a false teaching. So we've got to be careful about justification missteps. As you are going around online, you might, you might hear what I want to call gospel plus false teaching. Gospel plus false teaching. Or we might call it the gospel, but you also need this. That gets really dangerous really fast. 
It might be uh, the gospel plus food laws. It might be the gospel plus circumcision. Probably not something we're worried about today, but it was for the Galatians, right? It was a real problem for them. It was gospel plus uh, uh, Jewish ideas. Our scriptures do come from the Jews. The the Jews have received God's uh, promises. But today, many Jews stand outside Christ. And so they are under the judgment of God until they repent and believe. It is not a good idea for us to keep going to them for advice and wisdom because they stand against God. It is true that they might have uh, some knowledge of some of the things of the scriptures, right? But they are not an authority on these things. God's word is the authority. And they are blind guides while they stand outside Jesus. Again, and and this this isn't a racial thing. It's just a matter of um, where God's truth is to be found. We can also think of gospel plus methods. You have to dress a certain way. You have to do a certain thing. You have to um, fit a certain lifestyle. Obviously, turning away from sin. But the, the gospel will affect our culture. But the gospel itself is not a culture. You don't need to take on somebody else's culture in order to believe and trust in the gospel. We also see the prosperity gospel. The idea that Jesus will materially bless you if you do certain things or if you give certain amounts to God through his church. It ends up being a tit for tat, a quid pro quo. You sow, this is usually the language that's put in, you sow your seed and you will reap the harvest. And what it does, like most of these things, it takes something of the truth, twists it and holds it up and it becomes a lie by the way it is prioritised and the way that it is... um, not well used it is kind of pulled apart from all the other truth that god has given us there is the the charismatic chaos you know thinking about things like tongues speaking in tongues as a marker of salvation perpetually looking for miracles um, chaotic church services that are not done in accordance with the with what the scriptures say about how we are to meet together we've got false teaching in end times paranoia that's what i'm calling it the perpetual obsession with reading the times and not the truth of God. And it's often tied up with taking poetic and figurative language of the Bible and trying to apply it literally to the world. Now, you might re- you've might got to remember, as you look at the prophetic word of God, that it was a blessing to his people down through the ages. It is not only interpreted by people in this day. Right? You've got to remember, as you come to passages like the, the passages of Revelation that talk about the future, that's to be a blessing to God's people down through the ages. It's not just for you to have unlocked it today, as if it didn't matter to all those who've gone before. If you're reading it in a way that only makes sense because Trump became president in the USA, then you're doing it wrong. Another growing danger in the online space is the, is the manosphere and uh, the trad life movement, right? Our cultural circus has given, driven many of us to look for answers in tradition that has gone before, uh, to look for, you know, to revert back to understanding our physiology, who we are. And there is a lot of insight in these movements, right? There is a lot of insight 
and understanding uh, sex differences. There's a lot of insight and understanding. Um, they, often these people have facts and knowledge on various topics. But unless Christ is at its core, it will still lead us astray. It will not make a sound theology. We can go, yes, thank you for those interesting bits of information, but I'm going to see the world through the lens that Christ has given me, not through whatever um, thing is being made up on the spot. And a favourite that we like to decry, but we need to be careful of not becoming ourselves, is liberal Christianity. The kind of Christianity that kind of flows with the winds of the culture of the day. And if, and if a church all of a sudden finds that they're going to change from thousands of years of doctrine to fit with what is currently happening in society today, then that's a sign that that's what's happening. It's, it's liberal, it's, it moves, it changes, it progresses, so to speak, with whatever's going on in the moment, whatever seems fashionable. But we don't just worry about the, the liberal progressiveness of uh, churches that seem to follow two weeks later. Something is declared good or um, today and then these churches declare it good despite God clearly saying otherwise. Um, they declare it good two weeks later. But we also need to take care to not be the kind that are just kind of slow progressives. That we're just accepting the things that were accepted five years ago. Right? Or ten years ago. We want to be uh, faithful believers who stick with what Jesus once for all delivered to the saints. And what God has said for all time. I'd like to think that even here, in this pulpit, that everything is proclaimed as that is, is true and right, but all men who enter upon the faithful task of proclaiming the truth and instructing God's people will have their own weaknesses and misunderstandings. And so we need to test everything that you hear against God's word. I'm not saying you need to be like hyper-vigilant, like your immune system is constantly like ready to go and have a fight, but I am saying that you need to be aware of what you're being taught and to compare it with the scriptures like the Bereans who were applauded for the way that they heard the gospel and they went back to see if these things were so. It's possible for people to make mistakes without being a false teacher so to speak but it's also possible for people who were once faithful and diligent in the proclamation of the truth to be led astray and even for myself to become distracted from the truth. So a warning against me. So lastly We've got to remember that our gospel is the real deal. So I want to go back to Paul's previous letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, where he says in chapter 15, I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. We never depart from this core truth, the things of first importance, that Christ came into the world, the Son of God, Son of Man, that He lived and died for us. And when He and He came in accordance with all the scriptures that had come before, He died for us, dying for our sins, and He was, he was buried, and then He rose again to life on the third day, according to the scriptures. And it was witnessed by a great many people, including Stephen, uh, sorry, including Peter and the twelve, and Mary, remember? 
We need to not depart from this, not move on from this. It's not just the first step on a ladder that we climb and we forget what goes before. This is the ground, this is the center, this is the hub from which the spokes of our Christian life extend. We need to stick with it. And in order to stick with it, we need to watch ourselves. And in an appropriate way, not a hypocritical way, we need to watch each other and help guard each other and encourage each other and exhort each other in these things. We need to be unified around this true gospel from Jesus Christ. We need to rest in this gospel once delivered to the saints. And so I finish with these words from the writer to the Hebrews who said, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful.